Now, as we approach God's word, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you. And now I pray that you would turn our minds, turn our hearts to you, especially that you would overcome any resistance within us. I pray that this morning that you would use this passage and really strengthen us. Help us to be a people that really persist in seeking you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. This morning, we'll be considering the parable of the persistent widow, which leads us to a quick question, and that is, why did Jesus speak in parables? There's many reasons why. We could say, uh, on one level, and if you were part of VBS this summer, you know this, that a parable is a story Jesus told to explain big truths so that God's children could understand them. In other words, on one level, what the parables are doing is they are are explaining truth to us, especially about the character, the values, and the coming of the kingdom of God. Another function of parables is that the minute that the the listeners would hear them, there would be a response. The parables had the effect of really striking at us. The parables were such that when they were told by Jesus, it's not that we would have to go to a mountaintop and and really contemplate them, that the minute that we would hear them, there would be something within that parable that would call the, the listeners to a decision of some kind. But then there's another level to the parables, and that is the parables both concealed and they revealed the truth of God. They concealed in the sense that there were those that did not treasure the words that were spoken to them by Jesus. And especially we can think in this time period of the Pharisees and others who were in the crowds, that when Jesus would speak, they did not treasure the words. And therefore, Jesus would speak in parables to the point that at one, at one occasion, the disciples came up to Jesus and they asked him, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus actually quotes Isaiah a prophecy fulfilled against the arrogant religious leaders and others of the day. He said this, and I'll quote from Luke chapter 8 and 9. To you it has, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, in hearing they may not understand. See, hearing the truth of God's word requires more than just functioning ears. It requires a work of the Holy Spirit. And there are many in that day, the religious leaders especially, who did not treasure God's word. So God took the word away from them through parables. Another way of saying that is, for those that are hard-hearted, the consequence of that was that they would not be able to truly understand through these parables the kingdom of God and Jesus. They would not turn to him. Instead, they would turn away. But Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So whereas they concealed truth from those with hard hearts, they also revealed truth to his disciples, to his followers. And Jesus goes on to tell a parable here about prayer, a parable that we desperately need to grasp. And so with that, Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In seminary, I had a professor who was a tough guy. He uh, was a high school dropout. But then he went on to become an army ranger. Then after that, got his theological degrees and so became a teacher at Covenant Seminary. He uh, commuted every day back and forth to the seminary on his motorcycle with his long gray braided hair. And there was a rumor, and I believe it's true, I never researched it, that uh, he held the Canadian bench press record for his weight division. So he was a tough professor. I'll never forget the first day of class. He said, okay, all along, you all have heard that there's no such thing as a dumb question. That's not true. He said, if any of you ask a question that's not in line with my teaching, that's a dumb question. Needless to say, it was a fairly quiet semester in that class. Jesus, prior to telling this parable, is asked a dumb question. He's asked a question that's not in line with the, with the teaching. And for us to understand this parable more fully, it's good for us to understand the context, even going back in chapter 17. That the Pharisees asked the question about when the kingdom of God would come. In other words, they're asking, when is this day coming? When will we see it? And Jesus explains, you're asking the wrong question. Because the Pharisees, what they were longing for, what they were looking for, is a day, a visible kingdom that would come through a victorious marching army that would bring the Israelites back to a role of prominence. And Jesus is saying, it's not the day that you should be looking for. The kingdom of God, Jesus goes on to say, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, any time... God is respected, where he is loved, where he is honored as king. There, the kingdom of God is advancing. But then Jesus turns to his disciples, and he talks about the reality that the, a day is coming when the Son of Man will be revealed. The Son of Man is a reference to Jesus. When the Son of Man will be revealed, and that day is going to come without warning. It's like the flood in Noah's time. It's like in Lot's time the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that there's going to be a time where the great day of the Lord coming is, comes, but it's unpredictable. You cannot predict it. And Jesus is urging them to be ready for that day. But the disciples had no idea that that day would not come quickly. In fact, it would be thousands of years. And so for the disciples and for us, we have to understand that that day is coming. Jesus has told us to be ready but in this period, there will be many trials. There will be many struggles, many ways that we'll suffer. And what Jesus is calling us to, what he's calling his disciples to, is to pray and to not lose heart. 
Jesus knows that his followers at times will be tempted to give up. And so Jesus tells them in verse 1, he told them this parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. And throughout this parable, we find two characters that are going to help us to understand this parable. The first character is the judge, the second character being the widow. Now, anytime we're looking at a parable, it's good to ask the question, who best represents me in this story? And I'll just give it to you. Go with the widow. Go with the widow on this one. So let's look at the characters quickly. In verse 2, in a certain city there was a judge who neither, neither feared God nor respected man. Now Jesus doesn't give much detail about this judge except the fact that he was ungodly and uncaring. Then he goes on in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. And again, not a lot of detail about this widow. But we do know that widows in this time, widows throughout the history of Israel, suffered greatly because they did not have an advocate for them. And so Jesus already is making a contrast. And for the disciples and others who would have known the scriptures, they would automatically had a contrast in their mind between this unjust judge who is ungodly and uncaring and God who cares for the widows and has commanded that we take care of them. And in fact, just a few passages that speak of this. In Exodus 22, verses 22 and 23, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. In Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18, for the Lord our God is, a, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And then in Psalm 68, Dave read that as part of our call to worship this morning. Speaks of God as a father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. So it's clear throughout scriptures, God commands that that widows, those that are in great need, be taken care of. But yet this was highly neglected. And we see this, that the widows were mistreated. We see in Isaiah Chapter 1, verse 23, Isaiah says, Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And in Malachi, chapter 3, and verse 5, the Lord says, Then I, I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. So we see throughout scripture, God cares for the widow. And we see in this parable that there's an unjust judge who has no love, no care for this widow. And so we see verses four and five, for a while the judge refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down, or she will not wear me out by her continual coming. So the judge refused for a while, but eventually gave in, not because of compassion, but because she was beating him down. And literally in the Greek, there's, there's the thought of a black eye. So it could be that she was just wearing him down continually. Another aspect is it could be that she was very, or the judge was very worried about his reputation, that he would be known as a man who doesn't care for those that need justice. 
But there's also something else interesting in here, that Jesus speaks of this widow bothering the judge. And so the question, the contrast we have to ask is, can believers bother God? Is God like this judge? Did the disciples think that God could be bothered by too much prayer? And there is, um, there is reference that yes, in those days, many of the Jews would limit their prayers to God. They felt as though three times a day was enough unless you would actually wear out God. But Jesus is going to make the case that's not the case, that we can never bother God, that he calls us to come to him day and night continually. Verse 6, this is a striking part of the parable where Jesus says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. In other words, listen. He wants his disciples to hear the contrast between this unrighteous judge and God. Verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect? Will he not give justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Some of your translations may be, will he keep putting them off? And really, this is the heart of the matter, isn't it? This is the heart of the matter. It's a great question that Jesus asks. And if I can rephrase it a bit, will God pull through always in every circumstance that we're in? Will he delay? Will he act quickly when I struggle? Is God like this judge here in this story that he'll answer if I just pester him enough with my prayers. So it's all about me. I gotta pray harder, I gotta pray harder, I gotta do more. Is that what is that the case that this parable is making? And obviously not. Jesus goes on in verse 8 to say, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And even that, we have to grab a hold of this contrast. If an unrighteous judge gives justice to a widow because she persists, finally, how much more will God give justice to his chosen ones quickly? But we have to be able to take verse 8. Let's turn it into two questions. The first one will be, will God bring about justice for his people? What assurance do we ultimately have that God will bring about justice? Because Jesus says, of course he will. He's not like this unjust judge. Certainly, God won't let his justice or his, his chosen ones down. He will bring about justice for them. And we see this throughout the scriptures. In fact, over 300 times there's a phrase in the scriptures. I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's a loaded phrase. I will be your God. I will protect you. I will always be there for you. And you will be my people. I will see through it. I will see to it that you are taken care of. And we see this in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And where do we ultimately see the faithfulness of God? Where does this ultimately lead us to? It leads us to the cross. It leads us to Jesus. There we see the, there we see the faithfulness of God fully. And in this parable, the disciples didn't see it. They couldn't see it. Because the shadow of the cross, it was still in front of them. Jesus had not yet gone the way of Jerusalem to the cross. But we look back with privileged eyes. And we're able to see what God was doing. The great work of Christ. 
Titus has a great, uh, great statement about the gospel in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the gospel message, and it starts off with, but the goodness and loving kindness of God to us. And that's what we see with the cross. If we ask the question, will God pull through? Will he give me justice? Will he be there for me in whatever circumstance? We have to be able to take that question to the cross. See, does he love us? Yes, he does. He loves us enough to give his own son. And therefore, because Jesus took our sins and our punishment, instead of facing a judge, we face a heavenly father. Instead of punishment, what we receive is mercy, is grace, is his love. And beyond that, what is Jesus' promise to us? We see it in Matthew 28, that he'll always be with us to the end of the age. We see it as well in John 14, other sections that speak of Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit as our comforter, one who will always be with us. So will God bring justice? Yes, we've seen clearly God will bring justice to his people through, through Jesus, through the cross. But yet, let's go on to, uh, to Romans. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Romans in chapter 8. Starting in verse 31. Speaking of the, the justice of God, speaking continually about the everlasting love of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a great passage of scripture that reveals to us the reality. God will bring about justice, and look at what he does through Jesus. He gave his own son for us, and we see Jesus, who is interceding for us. He's going to the Father on our behalf. And not only that, the scriptures promise that we're more than conquerors, we're more than conquerors through Christ. And even tonight, we're going to celebrate freedom, and it's great. But that really is nothing compared to the freedom that we have, that we see through the scriptures, that we really are through Christ. We have justice. We've been freed from our sin. We've been freed from the dominion of sin and from the consequences, eternal separation because of Christ. 
God will bring about justice, but even as we go on, but what about our current struggles? The other question we have to take up, must God's people wait long before prayers are answered? Yes, God will give us justice, but what about in the meantime? What about when he seems to delay? And this is tricky because biblically we can come up with all sorts of examples of God's people who prayed for months and even years at times for God's deliverance. We can think of Habakkuk. In the first chapter of his prophecy, he begins with this question, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? And there's the prophet Daniel who waited 40 years for the conversion of the pagan king that he served. We can think of Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was promised that she would receive a child, but it took years for that to take place. She was 99 when she received the child. We think of Abraham, who was promised that he would be a father of many nations. He died before ever seeing that promise come about in his life, and we see that promise still being fulfilled as the gospel goes out to all the nations. So we see many people, and there's others throughout the Bible, that long to see God's answer to their prayers, and they struggled in the midst of it. And even personally, all of us have examples of things that we have suffered where we wonder, was God there? Did he come through quick enough? Or even right now, we might be in the midst of things wondering. Jesus says that he will give justice speedily, but it doesn't feel like it's speedily in my life right now. What do we do with that tension? A helpful verse to us is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. God's timetable simply is not our timetable. But here's what we can count on. In God's wisdom, once the time comes about for God to move, he moves immediately. When the time comes about, it is immediately. And there's a great incident that I think about with respect to this. Do you remember the story when Peter... And the disciples were out in the boat. Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And then Peter, after an exchange with Jesus, starts walking on the water to Jesus. But then he looks at his surroundings, namely water, gets a little nervous and begins to sink. And what does Matthew tell us? Matthew does not tell us that Jesus stood there waiting for him to choke on a little bit of water, saying, oh, this will be a good lesson for you. Why don't you just sit there a while? It's not what Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us then immediately Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him. I think that's the tension that we have to understand with this, that when the time is right, God immediately reaches out his hand and he grabs us. Believers are never helpless. We're never helpless. And the delay to God's prayers, they're never pointless. We're never helpless. And God's delay is never pointless. So we have to be able to trust that for his chosen ones, God patiently listens to our prayers. And in his time and according to his plan, he answers our prayers. But God will use this as a time of strengthening for us. He'll use this to test us, to, to persevere, and to continue to be more and more dependent upon him.
He may test our patience. He may test our faith. But at the proper time, God does answer the prayers of his chosen ones speedily. We see Jesus is not trying to cultivate with the disciples a one-and-done prayer life. He really is calling them to pray and not lose heart and to continue day and night to cry out to him. And the time of waiting may seem long. There was a, a, a time when I was in seminary. We were going to be there for a number of years, so we decided to go ahead and buy a house. And so we prayed a lot about this and were excited that first day to go, uh, to go house hunting. And that excitement quickly turned into despair as more and more houses slipped through our fingers. Houses that I thought would be perfect. And I was pleading with God, surely God... This house, we're praying. This house seems perfect for us, but they continue to slip through our fingers. And I was questioning, what is God doing here? Then one day I get a call from an elder in our church. He was helping us with the house hunt. He said, get to my house right now. So I jump in my car, drive to his house in a neighborhood that we could never afford. Down the street from his house was a house that he heard by word of mouth the family had to get out of this house as quick as possible, contents and all. So they dropped the price of the house well below market value. It was a great purchase for us. It was the perfect house beyond my expectations. But it was still about $5,000 over the asking price, or over the price we were comfortable with. I was going to take it anyway. I was completely content with that. But we prayed that night, my wife and I, we prayed, God, $5,000, if you would. The next day, we show up to basically shake on the house. The guy looks around the house, and there is a lot of work to be done. He said, you know, this is going to take a lot of work. And because of that, I decided I'm just going to go ahead and knock another $5,000 off the price of that house. About jumped out of my seat at that moment. And what God did is he built persistence and prayer in us over time, tested our faith, strengthened us to pray. And beyond that, when we sold the house, because we got it at a good price, it did allow us to pay for tuition for seminary to be clear of debt, debt to be able to afford a down payment on a house in Lawrence, Kansas, as well as buy a minivan, which is real exciting. But anyway, that is... Uh, that has a good ending, that story, doesn't it? But what about the stories in our lives that don't have good endings? What about the trials that we're going through right now, that we're crying out to God? What do we do with that? What we're left with is to trust, that we have to trust the scriptures, that God sees the whole plan, that he has all of the facts in front of him, that indeed he is good, he, he is wise, he is caring there's a song that we sing, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. There's a part of that song that I love. It is the part that goes, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. That is tough at times, especially if we've lost loved ones or things that are dear to us. The Lord gives. He's wise enough. He, he loves as he gives. But he's wise enough He's loving enough to take away at times, and he knows what he's doing. And our hearts must choose to say, Lord, bless it be your name. The contrast here is God is never an unjust judge. But you know what else, actually, in this? We're never the widow. 
We're never the widow. We have not been left alone. And we can be motivated in our prayer life because we have a God who hears. Think of the contrast that he has made. The widow was a stranger to the judge, but we're not strangers to God. God knows his people. The widow was alone, but there are many of God's people who are praying. She came to a judge who kept her at a distance, but God calls us to draw near and urges us to call on to him, Abba, Father. She came to an unjust judge. We come to a righteous father. She had no friend to speak for her, but we have Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, the righteous one. She has no encouragement from the judge, but we have the promise that God will hear our prayers and he will answer. And she could only go to the judge at certain times, but we can cry out to God day and night. The widow knew that her nagging would provoke the judge eventually, but for us, we know that the prayers of God's people, he desires them. He desires them. He loves them. We're never helpless. His delay is never pointless. So we can persist. And we mustn't miss the point of this parable, that Jesus is calling us to always pray and not lose heart, to cry out day and night. So what does that look like for us practically to establish that kind of persistent prayer life? What do we need? We need to understand two things. We need to understand that we have a great need. We also need to understand that there's only one person that we can go to for true help. First, we have to understand our desperate need. So the simple question is, what are you burdened by? What are your needs? What are those things that you wrestle with in prayer? Or even if you're feeling slightly guilty, what are those things that you know you should be praying for, but you haven't been praying for? What are you burdened by? All of us in our lives will seek out people who will hear us and potentially act. This came very clear to me a few weeks ago. I was driving in our minivan with all of our kids in the back seat. I had the radio on, honestly, to drown out some of the noise from, from behind me. Tiffany was not with me. And, uh, and I hear a, a dispute break out between my daughter, Paige, who's seven, and my youngest boy, Ty, who's three. And I can't quite catch the gist of what they're arguing about, so I, I do turn down the radio and listen. And right then, I hear Ty turn to Quentin, his older brother, and say, Now, Quentin, when we give, get home, you give Paige two wedgies. Okay. So, by the way, if you do not know what a wedgie is, I'm not going to explain it. Just don't ask for one. You don't want it. So anyway, what's, what's Ty doing? He's doing something that's normal. He's crying out in a time of need to somebody who can help him and act on it. But don't we do the same at times with our friends, with family, could be with counselors, could be with pastors, all great things. But in doing that, do we actually cry out to the one who truly can help us, who truly is always there, is always perfectly wise, always perfectly good, always perfectly powerful. It leads us to the question, do we understand 
that our ultimate hope really is in God, that he is the one, he is the only one. The widow understood this, that she, she had no one else to turn to from the judge. In the same way, we have no one else truly to turn to but God. And so, practically, what hinders us? What hinders our prayer life? I want to quote from uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, pretty good preacher, who said this, some people hinder their prayers by a lack of order. They get up a little too late, chase their work all day, and never overtake it, but are always in a flurry with one duty tripping the heels of another. They have no appointed time for communion with God, and consequently, something or other happens, and prayer is forgotten or so slurred and hurried over that it amounts to little. I wish you would keep a diary of your prayer life next week and see how much time you spend with God out of the 24 hours. Much time goes to the table, how much at the mercy seat. Many hours are spent with men, how many with your maker? You are with your friends on earth, how many minutes are, with you, are you with your friend in heaven? You allow yourself space for recreation. What do you set apart for those exercises that in very truth recreate the soul? Other duties should be done, but prayer must not be left undone. It must have its own place and sufficient of it. Care must be taken that our prayers not be hindered so that we omit or abridge them. And he goes on to say, in addition to obedience, there must be faith. He, prayer that avails most with God, is the prayer of the one who believes that God will hear him and who therefore asks with confidence, and let me add, and with persistence. In a word, faith is the bow of prayer. You must lay hold of the bow or you cannot shoot. And the stronger the bow, the farther you can send the arrow and the more execution you can do with it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God in prayer or anything else. Faith is the very backbone, sinew, and muscle of intercession. It's a great statement by Spurgeon talking about prayer. And even as he goes into faith, that leads us to verse 8, the last part of it. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus was not here referring to faith in general. Yes, there will be faith on earth because Jesus has secured believers through his death, resurrection, that there will be believers of faith. But this is saying, will there be this kind of faith, the faith of the widow, a persistent faith when the Son of Man returns? And this question is not asked out of speculation, but really what this parable is doing is it's asking a question for us to examine ourselves. What kind of faith do we show in prayer? Will we see this kind of faith? Now, here's what I want to do. In football, it's a two-minute drill. At the end of the game, you practice two minutes, two-minute drill with the rest of Luke. I'm telling you two minutes so that you don't get nervous because I'm going to finish out this chapter of Luke. So, Luke chapter 18, look how Jesus follows this up. The next story we have, and, and keep this question in mind, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What kind of faith is he looking for? The next section is the Pharisee and the tax collector. They go to the temple and pray. That the, tax, or the Pharisee is basically saying, thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. I've got it all under control. He has faith in himself. But who does God honor? 
He honors the sinner, the tax collector, that says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. That's the kind of faith to understand that we have to have, a humble faith that understands who we are in light of God. Next section, let the children come to me, is what Jesus essentially says. The disciples are trying and others are trying to keep children away from him. Jesus says, no, let them come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. And here Jesus is calling us not to have a childish faith. In other words, a childish faith is one that really does not know the scriptures, doesn't care about theology and the things of God. Not a childish faith, a childlike faith. Very dependent, as a child is dependent on his mother and father, a very dependent faith. The next one, the rich ruler. What did he have faith in? He goes to Jesus, and he has faith that becomes very evident in his possessions and the fact that he is rich. And Jesus gives him an, op- an option to turn away from his riches and to follow Jesus. But he turns away from Jesus instead because he has faith in the things of this world, and he goes away sad. And to end this section, we have the story of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, who is on the road and he's crying out, Jesus, he's blind from birth, he's begging, Jesus comes along, the crowd is stirred, he hears what's going on and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, at that point, he has no right to do this. Everybody knows that. He's blind. He's cursed by God. He's a beggar. He is nothing in that society. And so the crowd tells them, essentially, shut your mouth. Nobody wants to hear from you. So he cries out again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Against all that opposition, like a fool, he cries out to God. But, but he's not the fool because Jesus comes to him. And what does Jesus say? He says, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, let me receive my sight. Jesus says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. What kind of faith? The kind of faith that is absolutely persistent, that he understood he has no help, no hope apart from Jesus. And so Jesus' words, what do you want me to do for you? That is the question we have this morning. What do you want me to do for you? In the beginning, we talked about the reality that there is, there is the wrong question of when will this day be, Jesus, that all this exciting stuff happens in your returns. But that's not the question we focus in on. The question this morning, will Jesus find faith in this day? In other words, how are you living now? How are we living now? What are our burdens? Jesus is still saying, what do you want me to do for you? What will we bring to him? How will we persist? Let's pray together.